This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of Radio.com Sports. Radio.com Sports presenting Big Time Baseball. Brought to you by the 2019 Mercedes-Benz A-Class. I'm Josh Lewin. Well-respected baseball insider John Heyman joins as always. Every week, we're bringing you insight into the top storylines across Major League Baseball. We're getting right down to the end now. Less than four weeks to go in the regular season. And no managers to talk to this time. No general managers to talk to this time. We're we're doing things a little bit differently. We're going kind of uh, slightly off the grid. We're going to talk to Derek Gould of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch because we keep meaning to, to really do a deep dive on the Cardinals, so we'll get into that as they've come on. But the highly influential statistician, writer, and Red Sox senior advisor now, Bill James, will be with us as well. Big Time Baseball, a part of Radio.com. You can listen to your favorite radio stations free of charge anytime, anywhere. And make sure you've got us uh, on your Twitter feed, too, Radio.com Sports, at RDC Sports. Subscribe to Big Time Baseball on iTunes or wherever you happen to get your podcast. So we bring in John Heyman, and we start talking about wild card pictures and uh, the National League, the American League division races, the the, the NL wild card race, John, in the National League, I guess we still have two divisions still in play to be decided. And I think those races are arguably more interesting than the wild card race, because even though there are a lot of teams hanging in there in that kind of four to six games out range, I don't know if any of those teams have really shown they're, they're likely to get that far to challenge, for example, the, the Cubs and the Nationals. Is that accurate at this point? Or, I mean, if I say, hey, forget the Diamondbacks, forget the Mets, let's just see what's happening with the NL Central title. Uh, agree or disagree? Yeah, first of all, I'm really looking forward to Bill James, uh, obviously a historical figure in baseball and a terrific guy we, I've worked with on uh, MLB Network on, uh, on occasion. I, I would agree with you. Uh, uh, Josh, I, I think the NL wild card is starting to take shape, and I've seen now. I think it was Fangraphs says Washington is 98 or 99 percent to make it, and the Cubs are 88 percent, something along those lines. Uh, I was looking forward to a quite a wild finish with Arizona, Philadelphia, the Mets, and others, and Milwaukee with a, with a really good chance to get in there. But uh, it seems like uh, it's solidifying itself. Washington's certainly going to be in there. They've deserved it. They've been fantastic. And the Cubs are going to be good enough. It appears their lead is slight over Philly and some of the others at the moment. But I, I believe that Philly's schedule works against them. And that's the reason that the Cubs are the prohibitive favorite. I, I do think that the NL Central race is more interesting at this point. I'm shocked that that happened. But, and I'm shocked that St. Louis is in front, frankly. But uh, uh, I think that's more to keep an eye on now than the, the wild card. I think you're right. 
Yeah, the, the Phillies' final 26 games have 17 on the road, 20 against winning clubs. I just don't think they're a good enough team to overcome that. Uh, American League wild card race. I'm looking at strength of schedule. And though I'd love to see the Red Sox make a run, I'm, I'm really hoping they do. Uh, 517 strength of schedule for the uh, opponent's win percentage rest of the way. Cleveland's at 495. The Rays are at 469. The A's only a 460. They got a lot of Mariners and stuff still on there. You know, and it's funny. I, I want to get to the Boston piece of this, if you don't mind, because, and we've talked about this, and everybody seems to blame the Red Sox bullpen. And if you look at it without kind of taking the big picture, I get that because losses when leading after seven innings. Cleveland's had three of those. Tampa Bay's had four of those. Boston's had nine. So, you know, if all you did was look at that, you'd say, aha, aha, there's the reason that Boston is the five or six games out. But the, the whole reason that that bullpen has that nine next to its name is because the starters are going two innings, three innings, four innings. I mean, John, they, they were just out there in Anaheim. David Price comes off the injured list, gives them two innings. Nate Evaldi gave them four. They had to use an opener of all things on the Saturday game. Josh Taylor gave them one. So that seven innings total out of your starting pitchers, one of those games went 15 innings. So you're asking for close to 30 innings out of your bullpen in a weekend? That's insane. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Josh. Uh, for the pedigree and the price, no pun intended, with David there, uh, obviously the Red Sox are not getting what they expected from Sale, from Price, and from Avaldi. And I think in the end that's going to be their undoing. I, I don't think they're going to make it. They obviously have an incredibly talented team on the field positionally, and they have a shot. I don't, I'm not going to rule them out, but uh, you know, I've stuck with Oakland making it and the loser of the AL Central race, which I think is going to be Cleveland. Uh, Minnesota's schedule was more favorable, so I felt they would hang in there all along, and I predicted them at the beginning, which I like to mention. I like to mention that on every podcast, because uh, not all my predictions are very good. In fact, most of them are not, but uh, I like to be, tout my Twins prediction. I think Oakland is a great second-half team. They're on a nice run. They're having a good year, and Cleveland's uh, got that great starting pitching, and as you've uh, referenced uh, the, the bullpen has been pretty darn good too so I think they're going to make it never count Boston out with that talent with the names obviously they did it last year but uh, uh, I'm going to say that they're not going to make it and Tampa looks like they're playing well making a run and they fool me every year but uh, I don't have them as one of those teams that's going to make it in the end uh, we shall see I could be proven wrong by them again it would not be the first time well, and I'm not going to jump on that pile. I'd like to, but I'm not going to jump on you for occasionally being wrong because we all go there. But the, uh, the team that has gotten the whole starting pitching thing right this year, I want to talk about them for a moment. That's Houston. The, the Cole and Verlander one-two punch, probably the best we've seen this decade. Uh, Verlander's no-hitter. I mean, to have three of those anyway is astonishing. To have two in Canada is really astonishing. You wonder when he's going to slow down. And then, you know, you, you spend all this time staring at Verlander because he just had a no-hitter. Then you realize Garrett Cole hasn't lost in 17 starts. And he's got five 14-strikeout games in an Astros uniform now. That's in 60 starts. So basically almost one out of every 10 times he goes out there, it's 14-strikeout game. Nolan Ryan had two of those in an Astros uniform. Roger Clemens had zero, okay? <laughs> Garrett Cole's got five of them already. And, and we haven't even mentioned Zach Greinke. Amazing. It's incredible. Uh, Verlander and Cole uh, are going to vie for the uh, Cy Young. I don't know who's one or who's two right now. I mean, if I had a guess, I'm going to say 
Verlander slightly. He's lost two close votes in the past in 16 and in 18 to Porcello and Snell, but uh, either guy deserves it. They've both been fantastic. I don't know what Brent Strom is doing. Uh, it's one of those over 70 coaches, and maybe he's the trend as we brought it. Uh, Charlie Manuel uh, was brought back this year, and Phil Regan came back to coach this year. So uh, I think it's a good trend. I'm happy with it. Brent Strom does a fantastic job. Whatever they do in Houston is very good. Uh, their pitching is incredible. That's why everybody else is going to have them as the favorite. I did suggest them at the beginning of the year to make it to the World Series, but uh, boy, their pitching is amazing, especially in a year where the ball is, uh, is flying, shall we say. I don't know if it's the ball, the bats, or what, but obviously the home runs are crazy. Uh, Verlander to have a whip of, I believe it's something like .77, uh, in, amazing, just incredible. I think John Morosi suggested it was... Uh, the best uh, since Pedro Martinez uh, one year, uh, and I would think so. Uh, just an incredible performance uh, by Verlander in his late 30s. Uh, you got to give him credit and Cole, too, and Cole with the timing as he's a free agent after the year. So it uh, should be an interesting free agency for him. Houston is such an interesting team. They're looking like they're going to go all year without intentionally walking a batter. I mean, that, that's a, a hell of a strategy right there, but apparently it's working. And they're going to become the first team ever with the most strikeouts achieved and the fewest strikeouts uh, allowed, if you will. You know, their, their hitters have the fewest and their pitchers have the most. So Houston, uh, one of these outlier teams that's doing everything right. And it just dawns on me, John, there are almost no average teams in the American League, either by record or run differential right now. Either you're good or you're crappy. I mean, you, you got two teams, the Rangers and the Angels, that are on pace to win somewhere between 72 and 86. It seems like everybody in the National League, except the Dodgers, is on pace to win exactly that. So two very different leagues. But the, the, the bottom of the American League, it just stinks like a herring here. <laughs> I, I mean, like a herring that fell into a sewer at a cheese factory. It stinks. The Mariners dumped a bunch of salary, and, and obviously they're doing a rebuild here. They might finish the year with a run differential of minus 150. The Tigers could end up at minus 300. So many haves and have-nots, and I, I guess I, I'm just not quite ready for that. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be about parity, right? Yeah, Josh, you started with Houston. I think Houston is the story here. I think their deep rebuild or tank, whatever you want to call it, uh, that was done several years ago and really paid off has inspired some other teams to do that deep rebuild. Certainly Baltimore, uh, with Elias, who came from Houston, was part of that deep rebuild that was very successful in Houston, uh, is trying it in Baltimore. It's hard to blame them on a micro level to to say that a team shouldn't do that when it was so successful for Houston, and to a degree uh, was with the Cubs also, if you want to look at their very, very deep rebuild and uh, their excellent team that broke the jinx. And so th those two teams' uh, strategies paid off, but I, I feel like too many teams are doing it now, and it's not going to work as easily. Uh, Houston did it at the right time. They certainly was part of their calculation. you got to give them credit. I'm not saying it's a fluke by any means, uh, but uh, at that point, uh, the, uh, the allocation for the draft money was – uh, so different uh, than it is now, and they they have amended it because Houston took advantage uh, so much. To uh, I think it was 16 million that they had allotted uh, by having the worst record. I I don't think the discrepancy is that great between one and I know it's not between one and two now. So I'm not sure that the deep re rebuilds are going to work as fabulously as they have in the past. I like what some of the other teams are doing. Uh, Kansas City, I do think they have some 
good players and some good prospects. They have good scouting, though. They're doing a little bit differently with their deep rebuild. But uh, I do think it's Houston, and it's a bit of a copycat uh, league where some other teams are copying them, and I'm just fearful they're not going to be as successful as Houston was. One thing I'm looking at right now, too, John, with the, the warm weather here, uh, not, I mean, it's, it's on the West Coast for sure right now. It's been on the East Coast for a while, and the Midwest is always hot in August and September. We know that. But so you, you've got the hotter weather. You've got roster expansion now, too. There is more pitching, but it's all very mediocre pitching. And I, I thought that all kind of dovetailed Monday when there were 11 doubles and 11 home runs in the Dodgers-Rockies game, first time that had ever happened in Major League Baseball. And the stunning element of that to me is this game was not in Denver. This game was in L.A. But when you're talking about that many extra base hits, 22 of them in one game, and now here comes a wave of AAA pitching, this is going to get ugly quick, right? Yeah, I I mean, September, you always see unusual things happen, and you're absolutely right to see that happen at Dodger Stadium. Uh, Amazing. Obviously, L.A.'s done a fantastic job, and they have great hitting. Uh, For years, the scouts were saying that uh, there wasn't hitting in the minor leagues. Well, somehow it's developed at the major league level, uh, whether it's the balls, the bats, uh, the pitching, I'm not sure. Uh, I think part of it is that uh, the over-reliance on relief pitching and the quick hooks uh, and, and I think part of that uh, was done because uh, teams figured that uh, pitch, starting pitchers weren't as good third time around, and they brought in the relievers earlier. And what happened is the relievers generally are uh, pitchers with less of a repertoire than the starters, and uh, they have, uh, I think this is the first year in, in about uh, 40-something years where the starter uh, ERA is hot, is actually lower than the reliever ERA. So uh, there have been a lot of changes that may switch back. Someone's going to notice that. Obviously, we're paying close attention to stats, so I'm sure that people will notice it and switch it around maybe. But uh, there's been, you know, a lot of home runs this year. And I I saw a stat at AAA level. There have been hundreds of more home runs at the AAA level as well. So I don't know. I can't swear it's the bat, the ball, whatever, but – for my money, it's too many home runs, and I'd like to see more balls in play. Yeah, that, that that stat that you referenced in AAA this year, the only thing that changed was the ball, right? So last year it was 3,600 home runs. This year it was 5,700. It was 2,100 more home runs. So that tells you something. Wow. Hey, I, you know, since we talked Dodgers here just a moment ago, I want to keep it in L.A. I want to ask you about the Angels because you're waiting for this team to become playoff relevant again. No Angels pitcher has reached 100 innings this year. Nobody uh, will get to 20 starts this year, I don't think, for them. That's really, really rare. Trevor Cahill will probably get to 100 innings, I guess. But, you know, it was just Cahill and Matt Harvey were the only two big-name pitchers, supposedly, they signed in the offseason. Not very big names, as it turns out. So, uh, obviously, the Tyler Skaggs situation now, I want to get your opinion on that, too. But maybe brick by brick with the Angels. Maybe we start with Skaggs and, and the latest on that. But then I really am interested on, on where the Angels go from here. Obviously, Skag situation, just very, very sad uh, for all involved. Uh, beloved figure, a very nice fellow by all accounts, um, and just a tragic uh, situation uh, where his untimely death uh, occurred, and uh, just very, very sad. Uh, obviously, uh, they had the toxicology reports, and, uh, you know, this uh, unfortunately is going to now be uh, could become a, a very 
controversial and even ugly situation. I saw that the family issued uh, a statement about uh, a team employee they heard was involved, uh, and uh, we just don't know much about it beyond the statements that have been made, and it's just a very sad and tragic uh, situation uh, for the Angels. Uh, Tyler Skaggs uh, was going to be their leader with innings pitched as things were going. Uh, if you look back on his record, uh, he had two excellent starts uh, before his uh, untimely death. Very sad situation. Um, apart from that, uh, the Angels have had issues with pitching injuries for years, uh, more than other teams even. Obviously, that's been an issue around baseball uh, for quite some time with Tommy John and all sorts of other uh, surgeries that have been necessitated, but the Angels have been unluckier uh, than just about anybody else and have not been able to weather that storm. Um, Oakland has had a lot of injuries, and somehow they have weathered it and, and made up for it in other areas. Uh, the Angels uh, have not, and uh, you know obviously they're still an attraction. They have Mike Trout, they have Albert Pujols, uh, they have... Uh, Shohei Otani. They've got some incredible talents, some all-time greats, and uh, they're still a below a 500 team. Uh, and they need to figure out the pitching, and they need to figure out why there are so many injuries on the pitching. Uh, and uh, they need to do it quickly. Well, speaking of pool holes, we're going to be talking about his former team in just a moment. Derek Gold is going to join us. But one last thing on Pujols. He's got a chance for 100 runs batted in. That would be his 15th season getting there. That would break the record that he shares with A-Rod right now. He's about uh, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in there, runs batted in away, depending on when you're listening to this. But chance that he'll, uh, well, outside chance, he'll get to, to Hank Aaron for most career runs batted in. Probably be a little bit short of that. But uh, whatever, if he's number two all-time, number one all-time, uh, that's a pretty amazing career that guy's had. And the, the Cardinals somehow, when they let him go, they got better, <laughs> which sounds crazy. I, I know that's several years ago, but the, the post-Pujols Cardinals, mediocre for so much of this year, now very much a story here in 2019. So Derek Gould right now on Big Time Baseball. So we are now joined by St. Louis Post-Dispatch writer, uh, former BBWAA president, Derek Gold, to uh, talk some Cardinals baseball. Derek, appreciate it very much. I got to start with with Flaherty. I mean, why not? 0.28 ERA in four starts kind of gets people's attention. I I know he's not going to be 0.28 the rest of the year. I would assume not. But uh, what's his upside? I mean, is this a a 20-game winner? down the stretch for, I mean, for many, many years to come, or is this a flash in the pan guy? Where is he? No, he is a, he's a number one in the making. I mean, 20 game win, Cy Young votes, however you want to measure that. He's a 200 inning, 210 inning uh, beast of a potential ace. He's got the right mix, the right kind of composure, the athleticism. Um, He's shown the durability for a young man. um, And he has the want, Um, you know, I, you know, you can kind of trace the the lineage of Cardinal pitchers, the Cardinal aces, uh, from Chris Carpenter to Adam Wainwright and the traits that they both had and they both needed to become that number one pitcher. And you can see some of those same personality traits, some of those same um, skills, some of those same kind of habits in Jack Flaherty. It's, it, it doesn't take you very long to see them if you're around. Well, now you get to be around all three of them because Carpenter – is working for the team as a, as a coach who comes in once a month. And so like this past weekend at the ballpark, 
there were all three of them. And you, you could see what traits they share and uh, what the future holds for Flaherty. Derek, uh, John Heyman here. Speaking of lineage, I'm amazed at the Harvard-Westlake uh, lineage. Uh, three pitchers now becoming stars this year, Giolito, Max Fried, and Flaherty. So give them credit. The Cardinals are should get credit for drafting and developing uh, amazing uh, amazingly over the years. Uh, I'm, I'm curious and interested about what went on at the deadline. Uh, we were hearing, of course, just like every other team, that the Cardinals were going to do big stuff. Uh, they didn't do anything, and it seems to have been the right move. Uh, you know, from my perspective, I think they're maybe the best at drafting and developing. Their trades and free agency have not really worked, panned out on, on the average over the last uh several years or so did they just look at it and look themselves in the mirror and say you know what we're not that great at uh, trading and free agency we're drafting and developing let's do it that way or or more simply was there nothing there or nothing close to happening that they did ended up doing nothing and it looks good right now yeah i think you kind of hit on a bunch of different reasons there one is um they are fiercely uh internal they want to look for internal options um, and they're fiercely protective of their prospects, um, in part because of their financial um, sort of blueprint that they have and what they try to achieve, you know, to maintain, you know, uh, well, they got like a top 10 payroll this year, but they they realize that, you know, one of the things that they're good at is going out and developing pitching and then not having to spend on pitching. It's sort of the opposite of what the Cubs do. The Cubs have had access to and develop the position players and have had to spend. You look at how much they've had to spend on pitching from Chatwood to Darvish to Hamels to this year, you know, this year to, you know, Lester to kind of put them over the hump and then lead them to that 2016. So these two rivals have been kind of opposite trajectories. They are uh, opposite set approaches there um the cardinals just uh they really really value their prospects um bernie Miklas, a former colleague of mine called them the faberge eggs and there's a lot of truth to that um, because they run their algorithms and they see how much value and how much production they can get from those guys at a young age and how much they won't have to spend on the free agent market and how little they want to give up so they ran into a case um this year that also played into it is they they just have really um, thinned their minor league system. It's been uh, it's it's been picked apart by graduation and by previous trades. Um, they made trade a trade for Azuna that really cut into their pitching depth. You look at that, you know that trade produced two guys who are currently in rotations for other teams. Um, then of course they traded. Uh, you know they they made the trade for Paul Goldschmidt. Um, two of those guys are have been part of the Diamondbacks this year, especially their catcher Carson Kelly. And so some of the mo- some of their depth and some of their most prominent names on the f- on the prospect side had already been dealt in deals, and that meant that at this deadline there was a really fo- there was a real focus on you know other teams wanting Dylan Carlson, other teams wanted Nolan Gorman, and the Cardinals just aren't going to move you know Dylan Carlson, who might end up being one of the top two three best outfield prospects in baseball at, when all is said and done at the end of this year, and could be part of their 2020 outfield structure for 10 starts um, from a newcomer. That's just something that they didn't want to do. And that was the, the, the ceiling that they kept bumping up against in conversation with teams. So um, I think, you know, it's, it speaks to their overall, and we can debate this, their overall overvaluing of their prospects and their focus on the future, um, not at the expense of the now. And it may catch up with them to be, you know, blunt. Um, I know, like you said, that, you, you know, they, they are right so far. I would say that there's another month to go 
And those are innings have to come from somewhere. Um, Dakota Hudson and Jack Flaherty have been through this before. Flaherty specifically has been a starter in September before. Hudson was a reliever a year ago at this time. But uh, they got uh, they got another month to show what they can do. Um, they got another month to survive. And then they have another month after that if they're as good as they think they are. So we'll see. The, the innings do have to come from somewhere. They didn't add from the outside. They didn't add certainty from the outside. So that means it could be throwing committee member or a committee of young arms against those innings, and we'll see if it catches up to them. Finishing up with uh, Derek Gold here talking Cardinals and curious about when Yadier Molina realizes he's this old. I, I mean, uh, Clint Eastwood is still making movies, and they're all very good. This guy is still playing baseball, and he's amazing. C- can you quantify it somehow just watching him every day, this leadership, the veteran experience, what does he bring to the clubhouse? But moreover, how is he still doing this? Well, he works really hard through the off season to, to make sure he could do this. You know, the, the, the phrase that gets thrown around um, probably a little bit much that it becomes a cliche or certainly like from outside the boundaries of St. Louis, it sounds like a cliche is that he works to catch all 162 games and you kind of laugh it off and go, oh, right. Like a catcher is going to do all 162. Well, he, he, he kind of does. I mean, he has, and this probably goes back, let's say a decade, maybe even a little bit longer, but he radically rechanged his nutrition, um, his diet so that he could keep weight off. He does a lot of running and a lot of exercise to make sure that he keeps his legs healthy and agile and as good as they're going to be. And again, to keep the weight off, he, he is focused on making sure that he is, you know, as lean and as strong as he can be um, and as flexible as he can be, because that's where the durability comes from. Um, You know, the guys around him, and this has been true every year, you can usually read how good the Cardinals are by, or any team he plays on by the pep, the bounce, the, the furiousness of uh, Molina's play. Um, he will always try to win, but when, you know, it looks like he is just having the time of his life playing, that's when he has a sense about a team. And this team, as it won in August, as it got Molina back, as it realized that, you know, look, he had a month to recover and he and his manager both described that as like a month to bank and he's going to play a lot and he feels great as a result of it. But the the sense around him this past stretch, particularly this past weekend, as they won four out of five in that crazy five game, 51 hour stretch um, was that he quote unquote smells the playoffs and you can tell it. He, he has been an advocate of this team since the third day he showed up in spring training. He told me that this is the team that has the right mix, the right mix of youth, the right Paul Goldschmidt in the middle, all that stuff that is a team that he had not seen around here in a while and he felt they had a good chance to win if they played well. And now he sees that they're playing well. So that makes him young again. It's a fountain of youth, right? That's what October is for him. He's out to win a title, and that keeps him young. Derek, it feels like the Cardinals are always, and not only feels like, the reality is that they're always at least pretty good. And I think we all expected that. I actually had them as a playoff team. But after they get off to that slow start, I'm frankly shocked at the way that they've uh, taken the lead and some of it may have to do with the, the Cubs uh, ups, up and down, ups and downs and the Brewers pitching issues. Uh, it feels like they've been under the radar, the Cardinals have. Um, obviously, we touched on Flaherty. I think Goldie trade, while they gave up some good pieces, uh, he's come on and, and 
I, I would say that's worked out from their side as well as Arizona's. Uh, is there anything else you can really point to that uh, uh, led this charge? Because, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I frankly don't think I'm the only one surprised to see them uh, clear in front at this point. I think uh, maybe there are the three elements that are under um, rated with this team. Um, and maybe maybe four, but we can combine two of them. Um, one is the bullpen. The bullpen has been exceptional. Uh, it, it has weathered the loss of Jordan Hicks, who has one of the best fastballs in the game, and replaced him with Carlos Martinez, who not too long ago was one of the best starters in the National League, and he's taken to the closer's role. Giovanni Gallegos, uh, the reliever that they got in the Voight trade with the Yankees, has emerged as one of the finest relievers in all of baseball, really one of the best pitchers when it comes to just doing what a pitcher is supposed to do, which is not allow people on base. Um, he's been uh, essential as a setup guy. And then the rest of the guys around them have, have shown versatility. You know, Gant can go multiple innings. Helsley can go multiple innings. Um, you got John Brebbia who can pitch in a game when they're down seven or when they're up seven or when, you know, they are holding on to a one run lead and he can do it multiple times a week. Um, you know, they, they, they have such depth out there in the, in the bullpen that, you know, it's created a situation where, and I, and this is another part that I would include in it is that you have to consider Schultz managing and his operation of this roster and his speech, uh, about what was it? Six weeks ago, maybe about how, you know, the team was better than anybody was willing to give them credit. And he was done answering questions about why they were wrong or why things were going wrong when he could see how things were going right. And he's been he has been proven right in that regard. And he has been a big part of pushing the buttons and pulling the levers to make that happen, whether it's internally or whether it's what we see with how he handled the series in Pittsburgh or how he's managed some of these recent series or how he managed the weekend. Let's, I mean, let's, let's take a moment to consider that not very many managers have had to put a team through five games in 51 hours and find a way to make that pitching work and prepare for every eventuality, including the worst case scenario, which they didn't have to face because the starters were so good, but they did line up the start. They changed the rotation too, to, to make that happen. So he and pitching coach Mike Maddox, they, the way they shepherded the team through that and got four wins as a result, a couple of them walk off wins, a couple of them wins, one of them a win with two guys that did not start the game. Um, he's, he's done exceptionally well managing it. And then I would add in um, Colton Wong. Uh, Colton Wong has become the player that the Cardinals have long expected him to be. He has been um, the second half of last season and again, the second half of this season, he's a linchpin of a suppressive defense. I mean, they are excellent at run prevention. And he has also become an OBP um, ignition switch and moved up to the top of the lineup, brought some normalcy to the top of the lineup with he and Fowler. Um, you know, the Cardinals have been searching and searching and searching and searching for ways to get guys on base in front of Goldschmidt, get guys on base in front of Azuna. And for the first half of the season, they, they had the least productive leadoff spot in all of baseball. And as a result, Goldschmidt just rarely had at bats with runners on base, let alone runners in scoring position. Wong has changed that, uh, you know, three triples over the weekend, you know, a team was second on the team in OPS um, le- going to be leading the team in OBP. Um, his arrival and his production has meant the world when there haven't been much consistency from the guys like uh, Carpenter and Azuna 
and at times Goldschmidt when, you know, the, the, the beating heart of the lineup has become long. Derek, great information. Appreciate you so much, buddy. Must be a really fun team to cover. And uh, we'll talk to you again, my friend. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure. Good to hear from you, John. Right on. That's Derek Gold and Bill James straight ahead. Hey, this is Cody Decker from Swings and Misses, the Radio.com Sports Original, here to talk to you about hymns. Now, baseball has done a hell of a job ruining my hairline over the years, and quite frankly, my wife can't stand it. Well, thank God I just started taking hymns. Go to 4hymns.com. 4hymns.com is your one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Now, hair loss gets to be a decision rather than an absolute fate. Hymns connects you to real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. These are no snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. No, this is real medication from doctors backed by science. Use promo code SWING and my listeners get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See website for full details and safety information. This would cost hundreds of dollars if you went to a doctor or a pharmacy. Go to 4 slash swing. That's 4 spelled F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash swing. All right, it is our pleasure to have the very influential Bill James on with us now. Writer, statistician, historian, current Red Sox senior advisor. Joining us on the podcast now, you can follow Bill James on Twitter, at BillJamesOnline. And Bill, uh, I certainly appreciate your time. I've always considered you to be, and I hope you take this the right way, the, the leaky faucet in Altoona that started the Johnstown flood. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't have the depth of knowledge now about this flood of, of information, the analytics, the way we look at baseball such a different way. Is that a point of pride for you to be that, that first drip out of the faucet? I don't mean to call you a drip. Uh, if, <laughs> if it wasn't you, would it have been someone else that, that filled the void? Or, or where do you see yourself in terms of where we are in baseball today? It, well, it's certainly the, the nicest way that I've ever been compared to a leaky faucet, and I, I do appreciate that. The, on the serious question, the, it's up to others to decide where you stand, and, and my own thoughts about that would uh, be distorted, a distorted perspective, and I'll stay out of it. I do appreciate that perspective. I, I've got questions for you. Well, let me start with defensive metrics, because to me, of all the great leaps and bounds we've made in measuring things in, in this sport, and I'll put it in a Red Sox perspective so we can both kind of jump in on it. There are metrics that suggest that Jackie Bradley Jr. is the 13th best center fielder right now, and, and that's where I just start to spike my cell phone and, and say, I can't, I can't, I just I can't do this anymore with metrics. Uh, help me through that. I mean, is, is there a way that, I, am I just not looking at it? correctly or is is there a defensive metric that that can somehow better explain the greatness of a guy like jbj where are we on on tweaking defensive metrics and making them more for the everyman well i think with with regard to most players we are a long way ahead of where we were in the 1970s and 1980s Uh, i don't believe the jackie bradley jr conclusion any more than you do maybe less the uh uh and i but I point out, I've analyzed it this way. First of all, there are a lot of really exceptional defensive center fielders. I mean, he's, he's not being compared to the standard of an, out, an outfielder, which includes lots of guys who are not very good. He's being compared to the center fielders, and we have a lot of really good center fielders right now, so that's one thing. The uh, 
Uh, a second is that the it's very difficult for the defensive metrics to uh, adjust for park effects because park effects are totally different defensively than they are offensively. And I'm not convinced that the adjustments that are made for them are all correct. For example, you know, as a, you follow the Red Sox that in Boston, the, uh, the left fielder, because he can't catch a 350 foot fly ball and run into the wall first, he, he pulls in and is, as he pulls in, he shades towards center. Uh, it's, it's difficult for defensive metrics to adjust for something like that. The third thing I point out is defensive metrics are set up uh, so that they start in the middle and go up or down. And I never like that. It's like, it's basically like assuming that since an average hitter is 270 hitter or 265 hitter or whatever, we'll measure everybody by whether or not they hit better than 265. And I, I just, I think that's a, I think that's a poor concept of how to how to measure what somebody's doing, and I think it causes all kinds of different problems. Hey, Bill, uh, John Heyman here. It's a pleasure to have you on. You're certainly a historical figure in baseball, and uh, uh, sabermetrics is a huge part of the game. Uh, thanks to you, uh, I wanted to ask you specifically uh, about the the WAR number. Uh, I love the fact that there is a a number that rates players overall. Um, I know that uh, the critics and, uh, you know, I occasionally I've pointed things out as well, uh, have pointed to the fact that there are two different war numbers and also that there are some uh, numbers that we'd question. Uh, Lou Whitaker, obviously, we probably underrated him, uh, but he's got a higher war than Jeter. Uh, I don't want to sound like a New York honk, but uh, Rick Russell has a higher war than uh, Whitey Ford. And there are examples of this. what do you think about the the overall uh, of war, and is there somewhere that it's uh, that it needs to go from here? That any change needs to be made, or are you satisfied uh, that it's a, a fairly decent approximation of the total value of the player? Um, I'm probably more skeptical of it than you are, uh, based on just what you said, John. By the way, good good to talk to you. I think that the idea of war is. You know, a solid idea. I think that basically there is a replacement level, and measuring players by how much I think the player's value is how much better he is than the guy you could replace him with. I think that's a, a solid concept. I do think that there are, are the problem is we got there too fast, right? Somebody figured out that the right way to evaluate a player's value is by how much better he is than the replacement level, and then there was a rush in a very short period of time to overcome all of the measurement problems and come up with a number that represented what that was. And in that rush to do that, a lot of assumptions were made that weren't necessarily valid. For example, no one really knows what the replacement level is, and there's no solid study anywhere that I'm aware of that shows what the replacement level is. Also, the replacement level varies all the time. Uh, you know, everybody's repl- Every team's replacement level is different. You how you're going to deal with that. The, um, and uh, there are elements that are difficult to assign responsibility for. You know, let's say a double play is turned. Is it is that double play turned because second because the pitcher got a ground ball exactly like he wanted, or is it turned because the second baseman is exceptional, or is it turned because the runner was slow, or is it turned because the um, shortstop handled the middle of the play exceptionally, or because the first baseman does the ball out? 
can't really say, but you have to make an, uh, an assumption about what kind of value you place on that play. And if those assumptions are not exactly right, then you get, you get a higher value for Lou Whitaker than Derek Judy. The, uh, so, uh, I, I mean, I think it's a solid concept, but I do think that there's actually, I, if you look 30 years ahead and say, what will we be using then? We may still be using war, but I think it'll be a lot different than it is now. Bill James is joining us. I got one more for you, Bill, just on the subject of, of average players. I mean, wins above replacement, as you say, you kind of assume it's what's better than, than zero, right? I mean, what's better than a baseline. But you've written, and I, I think it's so true, that you, you look at talent in, in baseball and you have to look at it kind of like a pyramid, right? I mean, for every average player, there are a lot more that are below average or worse. And, and sometimes we have a, a tendency to just kind of shrug off the average player as, well, that guy has no value because his war is zero. And I almost think that we're, we're too quick to do that. I mean, to be average and just achieve your, your zero, uh, that's kind of important, right? Because no team can afford a bunch of guys that all have a war of five, six, or seven in a year. The average guys have to perform like average guys for your team to have a shot, right? Well, yeah, even, even the guys at replacement level, which is below average, I mean, you said something that I really agree with. I mean, I think that not only is an average player having value, but I would argue that, in fact, most value in baseball is in being average. I mean, most most of the value possessed by players is in being average. The uh, the above-average players are rare, and what they contribute is crucial to winning pennant. But it's also it's not it's not large in number. The um, I don't know if that makes any sense. It's not quite true that that. An average player has zero war. An average player has some war because average is not replacement level. Interesting. Bill, you have so many great concepts and interesting thoughts uh, that we could get to here. And I'm going to ask you a question that could probably be under the heading of a, a little bit of bubblegum here. But uh, Hall of Fame voting has been uh, become very controversial. And it's probably good for baseball to have all this discussion about it. Uh, my own feeling is we shouldn't knock anybody off the ballot. That's a BBWAA issue, and we should keep voting for guys no matter how few votes they get at the very beginning, as we've seen guys who have uh, less than 20% rise up to 100 uh, and uh, I think sometimes we've really undervalued guys. Are, are there a few uh, that stand out in your mind based on your uh, numerical thoughts or even just feelings uh, who we've overlooked and should be in the Hall of Fame and aren't quite there yet? Well, there are a lot of worthy candidates that I won't advocate for. I mean, I know Jim Edmonds is a popular candidate. Well, okay, if you want to vote for him, go ahead, but I'm not advocating for him. You understand? The, uh, uh, I only advocate for one or two at a time, and Minnie Minoso is kind of my guy at the time, at the moment. I think Minnie is, was a, a truly great player. And he was denied the opportunity to put up what might be Hall of Fame numbers because of he was black, and I don't think that uh, I don't think that's a good reason or a good excuse. The um, I think he was a great player, and I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. The other question of cutting people off the ballot: there have been a lot of cases where guys dropped off the ballot. Uh, just you can't explain why that happened. It just it just happened, uh, and. But on the, on the other hand, the, the solution of keeping everybody on the ballot also has problems because it divides the vote to such an extent that it becomes difficult for everybody to have 75%. Anybody that has 75%. I understand why they did that, but 
uh, I, I mean, I don't know. The only, the only solution to it is to fix the whole process, and basically they're not going to do that. Bill, we could keep you for another hour and a half. Continue to fight the good fight that you're fighting. Go Sox, and we'll, uh, we'll chat again. All right. Thanks All right, a lot, Very guys. cool. Thanks Bill cool. James, uh, absolute trailblazer. Honored to have him on. Honored as well to have John Heyman's insider nuggets ready to absolutely explode on you. We'll do that in uh, just a moment right here. It is Big Time Baseball from Radio.com. All right, so we'll finish up now, get to the John Heyman Insider segment, which is usually my favorite portion of the program because it means I just ask John questions and then I shut up. So (laughs) uh, let me ask you about the Kansas City Royals, John. I mean, I didn't see this one coming necessarily, and I know a lot of people in Kansas City are like, wait a minute, we're selling the team? What's going on here? Uh, Who's the new owner? Is Dayton Moore still going to have a job? What is all going on in Kansas City? Yeah, it was very interesting. Uh, a lot of people are calling it an inside job, but that makes it sound negative. It's actually a positive thing, I believe, for the Royals. John Sherman, who's a local businessman, very successful, we think deep-pocketed, uh, should be very good for the team. And you got to give uh, David Glass, the owner, credit here. He'd heard from John Sherman a couple years ago that he was interested in buying the team. Uh, I apparently thought about it for a while, uh, understood that his son, David Glass, his son, Dan Glass, did not really want to run the team and was not really equipped to be the uh, managing partner going forward. And he's going to sell to John Sherman. That's a fait accompli at this point. Obviously, MLB has taken a poll by phone, by conference call, however they did it. And they're going to get that uh, three-quarter vote of ownership to approve this sale. So John Sherman will be the owner of the team. And I, I think that's very good news for the Royals. It means that they have someone who's from Kansas City, uh, is committed to keeping the team in Kansas City and uh, is very popular among other owners. And uh, it all looks very positive. On some of the other fronts, uh, it does appear, from what I've heard, uh, leak sources tell me that he is interested in a downtown stadium. Uh, that Royal Stadium has been a gem, but uh, he likes the idea of a downtown stadium. So they're going to go to work on that, I do believe. And that is a possibility uh, for Kansas City and will be an issue probably for the next several years. And the other issue, as you mentioned, Dayton Moore, uh, who's done a terrific job as general manager of the team, uh, won a World Series. Kansas City, the only small market team that's been able to win a World Series, uh, won it in 2015, twice in the World Series. They're rebuilding now. They have to do that cyclical thing. There's nothing else they can do about it. But John Sherman, from what I understand, knows Dayton Moore well. He is, in, uh, as I said, while he is a, John Sherman is a part owner of the Indians, has accumulated about 30% of the Indians, from what I understand. Uh, he has been around the Royals a lot. He is in Kansas City and is an admirer of Dayton Moore, according to league sources. And my understanding is that Dayton Moore, uh, once this is approved, will receive a long extension and be there for a long time. Uh, the reports have indicated he is there through 2020, but I think that's really incorrect uh, that he had been given an extension uh, when the Braves came after him a couple of years ago. He decided, Dayton did, uh, that uh, he wants to be loyal to Kansas City and to Mr. Glass and stayed there and did get an extension, but he's going to be very long-term. I'm not sure of the exact number of years, uh, but John Sherman, when he announces uh, that he is the new owner, uh, will make that clear to everybody. What are you hearing, if anything, about Baltimore? Because every once in a while, this kind of pops up, and it really cheeses off a Junior Angelos when, when it comes out <laughs> that, that Nashville uh, might have an interest or there's an owner that might buy Baltimore. 
and take it to Nashville or, or somewhere else or do something. But uh, the Orioles situation, I mean, is there anything to that? Are there other teams that could be for sale here? Because this is such an underreported uh, little sidebar this year, if that's the case. Yeah, there is a potential to the uh, Orioles uh, on the sale front, and I will get to that. I, I neglected to mention that uh, the, the Royals people will meet uh, with Ned Yost, the manager, uh, sometime in this week or very soon thereafter and discuss his future. Uh, he was given a one-year extension uh, through this year. His, his contract is up. Uh, my understanding is that uh, he's not certain uh, if he wants to manage again after this year. And when you hear that, uh, the likelihood is that they will probably move on. They know they're in the middle of a rebuild. Uh, he's been there, very accomplished, done a terrific job. Uh, but that is my guess there. Uh, as far as the Orioles go, very interesting uh, situation uh, where the sons of Peter Angelos, John, and Lewis are currently running the team. Uh, what has happened there is uh, uh, the owner, Peter Angelos, longtime owner, a very controversial owner, as we know, uh, has been there uh, quite a long time. And uh, he's over 90 years old now, and uh, he is uh, basically incapacitated. Uh, he is ill, and uh, has, his wife, Georgia, uh, is now in control. And from what I understand, and this is rather inside, the, the wife has greater, uh, ha greater belief that the two sons uh, can run the team, John and Lewis, going forward. So uh, the chances of, of them retaining the team are still alive. Uh, when Peter was in charge, it appeared that he preferred uh, to sell the team, or at least to move on and not have his sons inherit the team and run the team. And uh, that may just be because he doesn't want them to have the headaches. Uh, it may be because he didn't believe that uh, they really were uh, 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 qualified to do it. I, I don't know. I can't say I have that kind of insight for information. But uh, the, his wife seems to be in charge now and uh, seems to have power of attorney and seems to uh, have the uh, belief that John and Lewis can run the team. But I, I think that's a, a question going forward, uh, and, and that is the most logical team that could sell uh, at some point in coming years because uh, that is an open question. Uh, I've heard some people say that John and Lewis will take over the team and will run the team, but uh, I think there are other people in baseball who believe that that will not be the case ultimately and, and they will sell. So that, that's the te team that's next, next most likely to sell. Let me ask you here, John, since we're on the subject kind of of, of Peter Angelos's old age, uh, <laughs> I'm looking at some free agents right now. I didn't think that 32 was a really old age until basically now, but I'm looking at guys that don't have gigs right now, position players that were never picked up once they got released, whether it's a Hanley Ramirez or even an Eduardo Nunez. I'm sure you've got a whole list of others that you can think of. But is that where we are in baseball, that if, if somebody decides that a 23-year-old that we can pay minimum can be about what you are now at the age of 32, you're just done at 32? Yeah, I mean, it does seem to be, I don't know whether you want to call it ageist or what, but baseball's clearly looking at the ages, and uh, obviously in this era, uh, there's been less productivity in the mid-30s, obviously, and late-30s. Uh, Justin Verlander being an incredible example. Uh, I mean, aberration, not example, but aberration. Uh, there aren't that many players who produce like he produces uh, into the mid- and late-30s. And several other players, positioning, uh, particularly positional players, have struggled to get jobs uh, when they were uh, released, DFA'd, whatever you want to call it. 
And uh, my list now includes Cargo, uh, Carlos Gomez, Kendris Morales, Nunez, as you mentioned, Ionetti, Hanley, uh, Pedro Alvarez. And, you know, somebody might poo-poo it and say, well, these guys are all on the downhill slide. And you could say that is accurate, but uh, I think some of it is the uh, price tag. And, you know, some of it is the fact that we have a lot of guys who are producing who are 23 and far younger. So uh, this seems to be the way baseball is going. Uh, Hanley Ramirez has already said, as I've reported, that he wants to come back next year and give it another try. And probably several of these other guys uh, do as well. Uh, some of them actually uh, had produced a little bit this year and uh, just uh, weren't having great years, and uh, it seems like they should get a chance and maybe will in spring training. Uh, Carlos Gonzalez uh, obviously was a big star in Colorado, not that far removed from it, uh, had not been that productive in tries, early uh, short tries with Cleveland and the Cubs this year. My understanding is that uh, he has some kind of a sleep issue that may have been affecting and probably was affecting his performance, and he is resolving that now, and I'm sure he's going to try to make a comeback because he is not very old at all and extremely, uh, extremely talented player. So uh, it's been an interesting thing to watch, and uh, uh, I'm hoping because I like some of these guys and some of them had really good careers that uh, some of them still have a chance to get back in and at the major league level. It probably will not be this year, though. All right, in 30 seconds, give me your updated, now that we're within four weeks to go from the playoffs, your updated World Series teams. Go. Well, I'm not going to change my World Series teams because I, I started with the Astros and the Dodgers, so there's no reason to change. I don't like to change anyway unless I've got a team that's completely eliminated, and clearly the Dodgers and Astros are not eliminated. At this point, the Dodgers are the favorite. I'd say the Astros are the co-favorite with the Yankees right now. Some people... I like their chances better than I do. I, I think the Dodgers are going to win it. I think they are hungry. It's been two years in a row that they got to the World Series, didn't quite make it. Uh, got a lot of depth. Everybody that calls up is fantastic, and uh, I think they're going to be the World Series champion, as I predicted. Now, then again, I, my record is not good on this. I've never had a prediction in spring training that turned out, but I'm feeling good about this one. All right. I'm Just to be a contrarian, I'll go Astros Nationals so that everybody can look at West Palm hmm. Beach as the epicenter <laughs> next year. The two teams that share the complex, what will actually have been in the world. I just think Max Scherzer is ready to, to show off a little bit, but uh, sure. I, I, can't, I can't go against the Astros with, with you yeah. for sure. The Nats uh, rotation is fantastic with Scherzer. Obviously, Corbin's been a great signing, and uh, they've got a shot, no question about that. We'll leave it there, and, and we'll revisit next week. because We do reserve the right to change our minds. But, John, thanks as <laughs> always, and thanks to our guests as well. Appreciate you guys for listening. Please do download, subscribe, tell your friends the, the whole enchilada, the whole burrito, the whole uh, combo platter, whatever you want to do to make this thing pop. We'd sure appreciate it. It's called Big Time Baseball right here with Radio.com Sports. This has been a presentation of Radio.com Sports. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.